the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Happy New Year. I'm going to say it because I've not seen most of you, so Happy New Year. Uh, My name's Gemma, I'm a member here at Belmont, and it is genuinely my pleasure to be uh, sharing with you guys this morning. Um, Just a quick survey of hands, who does the whole New Year's resolution thing? Anyone set any New Year's resolutions? Yeah? Not many of us as a a congregation. Um, I I don't know if you've seen this, I've asked a few people, it turns out not many people have, so if this falls flat, I'm really sorry. But it's been all over my Instagram, so hence the reference. Um, I've seen those of these recently on Instagram over the last couple of days, these in-out lists. People basically write a list on their phone of things they want to bring in for 2024 and things they want out for 2024. Here's like the home edit doing their one. Um, But I thought this is quite a nice idea, thinking about the things we want to bring into the new year and things we want to take out of the new year. And I thought, let's let's bring Belmont in on the trend. So I made one for Belmont. Here we go. Um, Now, obviously, obviously, as it quite clearly says, please still read the book of John. It is great, it is important, but unlike 2022 and unlike 2023, uh, we won't be studying John from the front in the same way this year. What we will be doing, though, at least at the start of this year, is we'll be get, we're going to be looking at the Book of Romans, and I, and I actually think that's really exciting. I'm really, really excited to go through um, this book. Now, over the next 10 weeks or so, we're going to be working our way through Paul's letter. Ooh. Oh, oh. That's a really funny meme for the right time. There we go. Over the next two weeks or so, we're going to be working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And to help us do this, we're going to be following Andrew Ollerton's book, which is really helpful because he's coming to the weekend away, um, called Romans, a, a, a Letter That Makes Sense of Life. And I've been reading that over the last few weeks. I can recommend it if you haven't got it already. It's a really good book, really helpful to try and get your head around Romans. Um, but, but in the book... Um, He talks about the fact that that Romans is a little bit like the Mount Everest of the New Testament. It is something that is both uh, challenging and daunting to climb. Now, it is true, I think, for a lot of Christians, probably some of us in the room, that that, that Romans is a book that we might want to avoid. Um, It's got a reputation, hasn't it, of being quite scary, being quite heavy, quite dense, and and if we're being completely honest, quite an intense book uh, to read. It's got quite complex theology, it's got quite a lot of like heavy kind of Jewish themes. It can make it quite intimidating uh, for us to read alone and, and to kind of make us feel like we wouldn't understand it even if we tried. The the truth is though, uh, just like a mountain, I I am told because I've never climbed a mountain, but with with the right preparations, the right tools, the right guide, actually like it is possible for it to be scaled, yeah? Like people do climb Mount Everest, It, it is possible. And over the next 10 weeks or so, we together as a family in here on a Sunday morning and out in our house groups as well, we're going to be learning how to navigate this challenge and hopefully we're going to be experiencing and understanding better how to live out um, our lives in light of the truth that, that we find across these 16 chapters, all right? 
This letter, I think, perhaps more than any other in Scripture, has shaped what it means to be a follower of Christ for centuries. Much of what we understand, particularly as evangelical Christians today, about how we're saved, how we're, we're made right, how we're forgiven, how we're loved, how we're restored and redeemed, can be found in the chapters of this particular letter. Uh, and whilst those truths are reflected throughout the whole arc, the whole narrative of, of Scripture... What we're going to come to see as we explore it in more depth is Paul explaining the work and the role of Jesus in the context of God's overarching story. We're going to be looking at what that means for us, the impacts and the implications of it for those who choose to follow Jesus in their lives. Um, Author and theologian Scott McKnight writes, the theology of Romans is about a way of life. Yeah, a way of life. That is why Romans is in for us as a church in 2024, and that's what we're going to start thinking about today. So in a moment, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and we're going to kind of think a little bit more about the letter itself and about the passage that we're going to look at today uh, and how it helps us to make sense of of life and our lives if you are a follower of Jesus here. So um, let me pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll crack on with what we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for another opportunity to open your word and study it. Thank you for this time that we have together now. Lord, we just pray that by your spirit you'll um, open our hearts and our minds to hear from you. Lord, I ask that you speak through me, uh, speak through what I've prepared uh, this morning. And um, Lord, just help us as we we kind of think about your word to, um, yeah, just to become more like the versions of you that that you intend us to be. Um, Amen. Fab. So um, we're going to be thinking predominantly about Romans 1, 1 to 7, and 14 to 17, all right? So we are going to move around in scripture. If you have a Bible on your phone in front of you as a physical copy, you might find it really helpful to have it open or on as we explore together because we are going to be moving around, all right? Now, when I was at Bible college, uh, we had a lecturer who would say this. If you take the text out of the context, all you're left with is a con. And so what I want to start us off thinking about this morning uh, is, is about the letter itself. Who wrote it? Who's receiving it? And why was Romans written? And luckily for us, a lot of the answers are in the passage that we're going to read today. That's great, isn't it? So um, I'm going to start at Romans 1, uh, and I'd love you to follow along with me. Hopefully it will come up on the screen once I can work out how to use the clicker. There we go. Just got to press really hard. Here we go. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to the call of all Gentiles to the obedience that comes with faith for his name's sake. And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. 
did we spot any answers? I really, really hope so. Um, so, who wrote it? Well, we read right away, didn't we, that this is a letter from Paul. Now, if you head to the end, you're not really supposed to do this, are you, with books, but if you head to the end of the letter, all the way back to chapter 16, you'll see in verse 22 that Paul actually kind of dictates this letter. He, he, he kind of says what he wants to say, but he has a scribe. Someone else writes for him, uh, and that's his friend Tertius, but these are Paul's insights. They are Paul's thoughts. They are Paul's wisdom that we are reading. And who is Paul? Well, um, Paul uh, introduces himself as a servant um, of Christ Jesus, but actually a better understanding of that word it is slave. Okay, Now, that sounds really odd to us in 2024, but it's important to understand that it would have sounded odd, too, to the Romans uh, reading this in around AD 57, AD 58 as well. The last thing you would want to be as a Roman citizen from a respected and pretty decent Roman family like Paul was... uh, was a, was a slave. That is the last thing you would want to be. And yet the first thing that Paul wants these people to know about him, reading this letter, it, this people that kind of live in this culture that prioritises rights and freedom above all else, is that he wholeheartedly, 100%, belongs to and serves Jesus Christ. It's a really bold way of introducing yourself. But it's really clear to him that this is the most important thing about who he is as a person, and this is the most important thing that they need to know about him. Paul also says that he is someone who is called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, the word apostle just means someone who is sent. And in this context, Paul's basically telling the church that he's someone who's been sent by God uh, to do a certain job. And what's the job? Well, it, it, it's the gospel. That's, that's his job. He is gospel Paul. Yeah? The, the, the word gospel just means good news. Uh, and we're going to spend more time thinking about that in a few minutes. But what's important to say now is that Paul clarifies whose good news he's bringing. Yeah? It's God's. That's what he says. Oh, sorry, everyone. There we go. And that's because at that time, the, the rule of Emperor Augustus was referred to as the gospel, okay? Because he was the person who brought victory and established peace. Paul is really clear, really early on, that he is a slave to a different master. Not the emperor who others in the empire would call lord and saviour of, of the empire, but to Jesus Christ, yeah? A different kind of ruler who is lord and saviour, not of this little bit of land, but of the entire world. So, we've had a little think about um, who it's, who's written it, and now we're going to think about who it's written to. So who's receiving this letter? Well, as we see, it, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. Now, these are people that already know and follow Jesus. These are people that Paul knows, people who Paul loves, people who Paul is invested in. And we know this because if we go to chapter 16 again, we see that he greets 27 people by name. Now, now I say this because I think it's really important for us to hold on to this as we come to reading through the rest of Romans, because we're going to get to some bits that are a bit, feel, make us feel maybe a little bit uncomfortable And it's important for us to remember that that Paul isn't chastising, he's not judging, he's not condemning when he writes this stuff in Romans. 
He's discipling. He's lovingly trying to point out to his fellow brothers and sisters, his friends, his neighbors, these people that he knows, these people that he cares for, these people that he loves. He's trying to point them towards Jesus, and that's really, really important. We also see from the list of names in chapter 16 that the Roman church are remarkably diverse. Andrew Ollerton points out that the names that come up in the personal greetings at the end of this letter reveal a remarkable range of people. Not only do we see men and women named, but also the names of Greek, Latin and Jewish people as well. The church in Rome reflected the city itself, a city at the heart of an empire that spanned over two million square miles. It was massive. The Roman Empire at this time uh, included Britain, included Turkey. It it went up to the the River Rhine in in Germany, and and it went down to Egypt as well. It covered a, a massive span of land, and it was a mixture of different people, cultures, ethnicities, backgrounds, and the church in Rome reflected that. And I think that helps us think about why this letter was written too. Because as Scott McKnight writes in his commentary, diversity shaped every moment of the Roman house churches. But Paul sought for unity in diversity, a sibling relationship in Christ that both transcends and affirmed one's ethnicity, gender and status. There was a need within the church for diversity. It was Uh, for unity despite diversity, right? It it was crucial. A little bit like the world we live in today, there was a lot of them and us type thinking, okay? You you were either Roman or a barbarian. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile, someone who wasn't a Jew. You were either a slave or you were free. That idea that a Jew and a Gentile or a Roman and a barbarian or someone who was a slave and someone who was free could come together and meet together and be one, could be equal in the sight of God, that they could both receive the same blessing, the same, have the same rights as one another. It's massively countercultural. And yet this is what Jesus is teaching. This is what Paul knew to be true. And this is what he's trying to show that Um, this church. Paul writes um, his letter to the Romans to show them how and why they are united despite their differences. Uh, And he he shares this message with anyone and everyone he meets. Unity and mission are then the motivations behind the letter that we're going to be spending the next 10 weeks looking at. And hopefully as we spend the next 10 weeks looking at, we'll see that a little bit more. Okay, so we've got a little bit of a better idea about the letter itself. Um, Now what I want to do is spend some time um, thinking about um, our passage this morning. Now if you've read any of Paul's letters before, uh, you will know that we have these greetings at the beginning of them. Um, This one though in Romans, Romans 1 to 17, is thought to be the longest greeting that we see in any of Paul's letters uh, and it has primarily one focus, I don't know if you picked that up, and that is the gospel of God. In these 17 verses, Paul introduces us to what he understands the gospel, the good news of God to be. And the rest of the letter to the Romans then unpacks this in detail, which is why these verses are so important for us this morning. They provide us with this vital route map, if you like, like this kind of 
sat-nav to take us where we need to go. Um, author and theologian Tom Wright, he describes it as um, the first-rate, solid, carefully planned launching pad that ensures that we get to where we need to go successfully. That, that's what this is. Now, I want to give you a minute or so with the people around you to have a little chat. Um, and what I want you to have a go at doing is coming up with a definition or an understanding of what you think the gospel is, all right? The good news of God. Now, you're not going to be tested on it. You're not going to get feedback. It's okay. It's safe. Um, and it's totally okay if you have absolutely no idea. Please don't worry about that either. Um, you might just want to think on your own. That's fine too. But it might be helpful to chat with the people around you. But just have a go. You've got about a minute. What is the gospel? Off you go. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, now, hopefully, that was quite interesting for you. I don't know, maybe you just sat and talked about what you had for your lunch yesterday. I don't know. But I like to think this is what you're talking about. Um, now, some of you may have gone for something a little bit like this, the, the kind of four points uh, gospel. So the idea that, you know, God loves us, we've sinned, Jesus died for us, um, and we need to make a decision about how we want to respond to that. That might be the kind of gospel that you had in mind. Uh, some of you may have gone more along the lines of this. Uh, Jesus is the kind of the Messiah, the, the long-awaited king, the son of God who, who suffered and died in our place, but rose again, uh, enabling us to have a relationship uh, with uh, God once again. That might be more of the kind of line you took, I don't know. The, the reality is, is that both of these things, and probably what you said, is right. Um, they just kind of come from different uh, perspectives of the same truth. When it comes to understanding Romans, then, it's really important that we understand what Paul's perspective is when he's talking about this word gospel, because just like us, he comes at it from his own angle as well. In verses 2 to 6, Paul lays out what he understands the gospel, the good news of God to be. He says, The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God, empowered by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you are also among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus our Lord. So what do we learn? Well, firstly, that the gospel isn't some new idea that God just sprung out of nowhere. It's something, Paul says, that was promised beforehand. Paul sees the Bible like a system of Roman roads, according to Andrew Ollerton in his book, where each character and symbol and story and event is part of a, a larger network of promises and prophecies, future insight, right, that, that's fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. 
We spent time last year, didn't we, going through the Old Testament and thinking about um, how it pointed towards the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. For Paul, the good news is that the coming king of Israel, the one that they had been waiting for for centuries, the one that would be God's son, that would make everything right again, and the one that would bring about true justice and everlasting peace, has come. That's the good news. It has happened. Yeah? God has done it. And the implications of that are massive. Paul reveals why he's so convinced of this as well in verses 3 and 4. He explains that that Jesus, he was a descendant of David. We read that in Matthew chapter 1. And that's something that this king, the one that would be God's son, had to be. Jesus also rose from the dead, a sign of ultimate power that could only be God. The good news is not that something can happen to us. It's really important that we kind of hold to that. The the power of this news changes our lives 100%. But for Paul, the good news is that something incredible has happened. An event, well, a series of events, I guess, through which the world is now a different place. The good news, according to Paul, is that God has done, through Jesus, the Messiah, Israel's true king and fulfillment. Israel's true king, what he's supposed to do. It is the fulfillment of everything, absolutely everything that has come before. The second thing that's really important about how uh, Paul understands the gospel of God is that this good news isn't just for Jews. It's for all people. He writes in verse 5, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Although the gospel is rooted in the story and the history of Israel, God's chosen people, it's not exclusive to them. We are all invited and welcomed into this faithful obedience, regardless of who we are and where we've come from. And why? Well, because it's not about us in any way, shape or form. It's not even about God's people, actually. It's about Jesus and who he is. Unlike Emperor Augustus, who was the you know, Lord and Savior of his, his empire for, for 40 years, however vast that may have been, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is Lord and Savior of the entirety of creation for all of time. His redemptive and restorative power knows no bounds. Everything All things, now and forever, are encompassed by it, including the Gentiles and including us today. For Paul, the gospel of God, this good news, is non-discriminate. It is a light to the entire world. So where does that leave us? Well, here's what I think, if I had to sum it all up. I think the gospel of God, according to Paul, is the good news that Jesus, the long-awaited true king and son of God, has come, fulfilling the promises laid out in the prophets and the Psalms that have gone before, making the world a different place to what it was before, and enabling all the nations to experience and partake in God's blessing together. Paul reiterates all of this again towards the end of his greeting, and we're going to go to chapter 1, 14 to 17. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. 
That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteousness will live by faith. What strikes me as we read Romans 1, the start of it anyway, is Paul's sheer confidence in what he has seen and knows to be true. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul admits that the gospel will seem foolish to those who who don't believe. But I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few weeks, and I'm not sure I have the same level of confidence in God's good news as Paul's does. Paul is desperate absolutely desperate to visit Rome, this place where the simple message of Jesus would pale in comparison, most likely anyway, to the glamorous alternatives of culture and the lifestyle there. This was a city that back then had had theatre and entertainment, it had hot tubs and spas, it had academia and philosophy. Did Rome need Jesus? Yes, 100%, absolutely it did. Would I have been so excited at the potential to be laughed at by hundreds and hundreds of people? No, I would not at all. And yet Paul, for whatever reason, doesn't appear to have these worries. And I think it's because, like he says in verse 16, he's not ashamed of the gospel. And I think... Some of the fears, some of the lack of confidence I have comes from the fact that actually if I genuinely think about it, I I probably am a little bit, I probably am a little bit ashamed of this life-changing and earth-shattering message. Because if I wasn't, I wouldn't hesitate to talk to people about it. And I do. Paul's confidence comes, I think, in part from his own experience of the gospel and the impact that it's had on his life. If you know Paul or anything about his story, you'll know that um, he had this remarkable encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you'll know about how it transformed him from someone who was out to, to persecute and kill Christians to someone who would go to the ends of the earth to declare the truth of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. But also from, from what he's saying before... He knows, doesn't he, how it, how it fits in with the rest of everything else he knows in his head. It's like Paul has both his head and his heart engaged at the same time. He knows it, both here and here. He's experienced the truth of the gospel. He knows the truth of the gospel, and therefore he can have utter confidence in it. He also understands that that the gospel is there to reveal the, the righteousness of God. For Paul, the gospel is ultimate proof that God is in control in control and God is in charge even when things appear not to be it's proof that God is true to his word and that he has it all in hand God calls out a family and enters into this long binding agreement promise with them way back in Genesis 12 and that's the way that God has chosen to to bring his rescuing justice into the world Jesus, as it's laid out in Matthew, and as Paul has made really clear in this chapter, is the crux of that plan. 
In the gospel, we see at last how God's justice, his righteousness, has been unveiled. This is how God has put the world to rights, declares the gospel message about Jesus. And this is how God is going to put you to rights too. That's what we read in verse 17. I think Paul understands something that I don't yet fully. And that is that the gospel is God putting things right again. Even though we sit in a time where stuff is really bad and stuff goes wrong. Paul understands that the gospel is this kind of moment where where God has done what is required to put the world right, even though sometimes things are still wrong. And Paul trusts God enough to let him do it that way, even if that's not what he would do himself or what he expected to happen. And I'm not sure I'm in that place yet, personally. I also think Paul recognises the power of God that's displayed in the gospel in a way that I don't. Because he understands that salvation is more than just about where we end up at the end. Paul sees salvation not, not only in the future where full glory is seen, but here in the present as well. In his ministry, in his own life, Paul has seen the way in which the gospel, the good news of God, has rescued people, has redeemed people, has changed people's lives. He's seen how people have left trouble and persecution because of it. How can he not be confident in that power? Tom Wright writes that salvation as a present reality, in as much as it is a future hope, is where the power of the gospel is really displayed. That moment where someone realises there's something more. That moment where we choose to do something that God wants us to do rather than the thing that we might want to do that we know we shouldn't. That moment where someone in the darkest and bleakest and lowest moment of their lives is able to hold on to just a smidge of light and hope. That is the power of God displayed in the gospel. And that power is immense. We're going to come to the end of our time, well, me talking to you anyway, together, uh, this morning. And um, before I, like, hand over, I I want us to suspend a few moments thinking about where we stand with the gospel before we embark on this journey of Romans together. Do you believe in the gospel? If the answer to that is no, or not yet, or I'm not sure, oh my gosh, it's wonderful for you to be here. Thank you for coming. Thank you for for being part of our family this morning. We'd love to answer any questions you might have and talk anything through with you. You can come chat with me, or I'm sure Christine would love to have a conversation with you too. At any point uh, after the service, we'd love to, to talk that through with you. Do you live in the gospel? That's my next question. Is the truth and power evident in the way that that you live your life? See, for Paul, when it came to his life, the gospel was in for 2024, and everything else was out, didn't matter. Gospel was what what it was all about. Is that true for us in our lives? Not true for me and mine, I'm completely honest. And are you confident in the gospel? Can you say you are unashamed of it? I don't think I can. 
Um, and maybe that's something you'd like to think about too. As we go through this series, my hope is that you and I will keep coming back to these questions as we learn more about who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means for us. My hope is that our answers will change as we explore more and more of what it looks like to love Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly. Right now, though, I'm going to give you a few moments just to have a little think about those things. Um, and then I'll pray for us, and then I'll, you know, let someone else take over. So have a little think. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it has um, moved us maybe this morning, for the way that it's spoken to us maybe this morning. Lord, we thank you that, um, that you are the good news of God. And we thank you for all that that means, that we know and understand right now and that we're yet to know and understand. Lord, as we think about Paul, we think about his confidence in your gospel and we think about ourselves and, and what we look like in comparison to that. Lord, I just pray that, that we'll keep running through these questions in our minds over the coming weeks as we learn more about who you are and, and what you've done for us. I pray that um, we'll grow in our confidence in your words, in your deeds, in your actions, in what you've done. And we'll be able to step out in confidence more and share the good news of you with whomever and whoever we meet. Lord, I just thank you for this time together this morning. I thank you that we've been able to spend time thinking about you. And Lord, I pray as we go into our weeks ahead, we will have a bit more confidence in the knowledge that we know that you have done it, that it is finished, it has happened, and that immense things can happen when we know and trust in that. Amen. <laughs>